Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. She was the daughter of a Creek prophet who changed the world by showing mercy and compassion for a captured U.S. Army private on the chopping block. This perplexed some whites at the time, as they did not think Indians could show mercy or compassion, but were, as the stereotypes went, savages. Other whites knew the significance of her intervention to save that soldier's life. They should have. Millie Francis, the Creek Pocahontas, destroyed uninformed and prejudicial views of Native Americans. She changed the world's understanding of the civilization the Creeks inhabited. She restored agency to the Creek in the public's mind. By doing that, she restored the Creek to their proper place, as intelligent, resourceful people, like any other group, such as whites, viewed themselves. Joining us to provide more detail of this fascinating woman dubbed the Creek Pocahontas is Rachel Conrad. Rachel is co-founder, producer, and on-air talent for the award-winning travel channel Two Egg TV. Two Egg Television is the creation of Old Kitchen Books, exclusive publisher of works by noted Southern historian and writer Dale Cox. Two Egg TV shares adventures, stories, and travels from off-the-beaten-path places and locations around the South. You can find them at tv2egg.com. Rachel Conrad also portrays Millie Francis through living history presentations around Southern Alabama and Florida. She says she uses this portrayal to help young people visualize Millie Francis as a real person so they can appreciate what Millie Francis did. Rachel has co-authored two history books about the First Seminole War. Old Kitchen Media uses such books and web ventures to support rural tourism, historic preservation, community improvement, and protection of nature. When not engaged with presenting Southern history with Two Egg, Rachel uses her MBA from Troy University to teach undergraduate business students. And in the community, Rachel created initiatives such as Skills Not Pills and Bugs Not Drugs to help kids choose better than drugs. Drug prevention, Rachel says, is all about helping people never even to try them. Rachel Conrad, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Hi, Patrick. Thank you. Why was Millie Francis a consequential figure in American history? And that's consequential, not controversial. Well, it's not just because she was Native American, not just because she has mixed ancestry. It's actually because of her humanity and mercy. She changed the world. Her story starts in Alabama and moves down to Florida, where she saved a guy's life. So imagine in this context, her family's adopted many of the ways that were brought in by European settlers. And so she's not living in a hut or a teepee or anything like that. She's living in a stable two-story home. She lives even kind of a little bit better than a lot of the frontiersmen settlers moving in. They have cattle, crops that are very similar to what we would consider an early frontier person. Her father is well-traveled. He's in communications with the British. But the Creek War breaks out. And the Creek Wars, first ones in Alabama, were harsh 
a lot of things happened after the Revolutionary War and then the War of 1812. The British and Americans are fighting and then the Creek Indians are fighting amongst themselves. And then Americans make a preemptive strike against them at the Battle of Burnt Corn and then they retaliate with Fort Mims and it just keeps spiraling and spiraling. Millie Francis's father, Josiah, reportedly had a vision from God that told the Creeks to go back to their traditional ways. This had consequences for Josiah himself and for the Creeks. Her father gets visit from God, who he calls the Master of Breath. And so he develops kind of a religion that is quite radical, but it's an effort to return the Creek Indians to their traditional ways. All the Indians, or all the red people, as some would say at that time, to their traditional ways so they would not give up any more land. The idea was to unite all the tribes all the way to the Great Lakes and not give up any more land unless all the tribes agree. You can't get a consensus among that many different groups, so... There was, the land was going to be intact from then on out, theoretically. Rachel, these visions for Josiah were in the lower 18-teens. Burnt Corn Creek, the Battle at Fort Mims, and the Battle of Horseshoe Bend were still in the future. With the defeat at Horseshoe Bend behind them, they were abandoning Alabama and setting out for a new future in Spanish Florida. The stage is set for Millie Francis to enter history. So her story gets really interesting. They moved down to Florida after Battle of Horseshoe Bend, which was brutal, and lasted a lot longer than people think. It was like a long battle, which Andrew Jackson almost didn't win. So they come down to Florida. The First Seminole War starts. First Seminole War, much like Burnt Corn and then Fowltown happened. What was Fowltown? Neomothla, a Creek, an Indian leader, missed a meeting he wasn't supposed to go to. And <laughs> what would the government do if someone missed a meeting? Well, they'll send a party out to find them and bring them in. Very courteous of them, no? Exactly. All right. So they see that they're just peacefully going to surround Neomothless Town and take him with them. And he's not party to this treaty. That wouldn't be very alarming, I don't think. A whole bunch of soldiers surrounded your house in the middle of the night, Patrick, and your dog started barking. Might you consider firing a shot? Right. Whether it would be a warning shot or a center mass shot is another matter. And they did the same. So Americans said, hey, we peacefully surrounded you in the middle of the night to take you hostage. And you fired at us. <laughs> and the said, hey, you surrounded us in the middle of the night to possibly attack us. And you started a war. We did not ask for this. You could have just talked to us, you know. We're, and we told you before we didn't want anything to do with you. The first fight didn't yield the Amasa for them. So they came back with more people. And there was a cannon brought. So that's interesting. That second encounter was passionate. The Indians had retreated to the woods. When the soldiers came to the village, they didn't see anybody there. So they're like, man, we're, hu we're hungry. We can take some food supplies back. So they started loading their wagons with the corn the Indians had. And the Indians are like, dude, you're stealing our kids' food. Like, this is, this is some serious stuff. You know, we're coming out of the year without the summer, which is a three-year time period when volcanic ash made the sky red and made everything really cold and the crops failed. And it was a hard time. The Indians start coming over open ground and fighting, and they're dropping like flies, and they're coming over open ground to fight. Like, that is some serious dedication. It shook the soldiers. They retreated back to uh, what is now Bainbridge, Georgia, and they built diamond-shaped fort called Fort Hughes. The Indians surrounded them. They almost starved them out. They had a siege, and there's a, a letter that Dale found. The only thing that saved them was a dugout canoe that filled up with rainwater, or they would have perished. 
The Indians are quite mad about this whole encounter. They call up all their friends and say, hey, we're going to end this war before we get started. This is ridiculous. We'll just cut off their food supply. This will be done and over. They get everybody together and go down to a place called Chattahoochee. Two rivers come down and they form a new one that flows all the way to Apalachicola. The Chattahoochee and the Flint come together and they make the Apalachicola River. It flows all the way to the Apalachicola Bay. And right where it meets, they flow together. Back then, they made a sharp 90-degree turn before the dam was built. and made Lake Seminole, which is a neat tourist attraction. This 90-degree bend, imagine a little keelboat, or a pretty big keelboat, coming up the river. The Indians are on the banks hiding, and uh, they attack it. And contrary to earlier times, the Indians have guns by now. They have guns for a long time. Everybody has guns. Most everybody goes down the first small with fire. And then they board the boat, and they kill everybody else that they can get their hands on most of everybody. There were survivors. One guy named Yellow Hair, he's like, oh, white chick was cool to me and helped me recover from yellow fever one time, so I'm going to spare this one girl, and she's going to come back home with us. That lady's story is very interesting. Her name is Elizabeth Stewart Bill. Well, Elizabeth Stewart then. She survived and got remarried, but she was a captive for a while. Anyway, when they boarded the keelboat to end this war, they why waste a bullet on the children? They took the children up by the ankles, or four children, and they took them up by the ankles and swung them and dashed their heads against the boat. That's very impassioned and brings up emotions in your soul that are very powerful. So America hears about this. They call up Andrew Jack. You know how to get stuff done. These particular Indians, savage, because they had completely forgot about foul town. They had this unprovoked attack. And so you need to get deal with it. And so he comes back from vacation, leaves his lovely wife, Rachel, I'm sure, you know, if she has that name. And he built the fort on the site of where the British had a post earlier. And that fort's called Fort Gadsden. This is where Millie gets to be the hero she's in for today. A kid that was there, and if you've seen this part of Florida, it's uncomfortable <laughs> most of the time. And have yellow flies and stuff that's in the middle of nowhere. Still is, but it's been quite preserved for that reason. So this guy says, I'm going to go fishing. But he goes fishing in the middle of a rainstorm in the middle of an Indian war. So maybe he was leaving. Who knows? Well, he gets captured. Duncan McCrimmon is his name. Uh, I'll let you read the book. There is a book, and it is a reason that she is now part of the Alabama Women's Hall of Fame. A lady read that book, and she nominated her. With no love lost between the Creeks and the American soldiers, I presume that Private Douglas McCrimmon's chances of getting out alive after being captured were somewhat reduced. So he gets captured by the people in Millie Francis's village. She's down by the river, and she hears squalling and carrying on. This guy is tied to a pole in the their village, and he's butt naked and just a hollering and carrying on. They're about to shoot him. She runs to her dad and says, you're the chief of this tribe. Save this guy. You know, he's so young. Under our law, I can't really do anything. You've got to talk to the warriors that captured him because it's a very eye-for-an-eye culture. Somebody has to die in order for their loved one to pass over the other side. And these guys had lost mothers and sisters in the wars in Alabama, the Creek Wars in Alabama. She reasons with them. Somehow she convinces these big bad warriors to let this skinny little white kid go. And so she goes over to him. She can speak English and multiple languages. And she says, they agreed to spare your life and let you live with us. Uh, they just got to cut off all your hair. And we have this story from her. And she said he stuck his head out and said, cut it all. I don't care. <laughs> her life doesn't change for the better. <laughs> There's a lot more complicated things in her life, and it speaks to her tenacity and a lot of the reason she's so revered today 
Duncan lived with them for a little bit, and her father traded him to the Spanish at St. Mark's for a keg of rum. So he was saved not once, but twice by Creek Indians. Then the press picked up this story, and they ran it all over like this big soap opera and made up things. <laughs> this is 1818. They pressure this kid. They're like, dude, you need to say thank you to this little Indian princess and go propose to her. The media pressure got so intense that he had to do something about it. And so people start sending him money and gifts to give to her. He had taken interest in that other little girl. And um, <laughs> I'm sure she was not too happy about this. But he goes down and all the generals write letters like, Duncan is here. I will let you know more. When I hear, and then he goes down and Duncan is here. I will introduce him to Millie Francis tomorrow. They did not have the secrecy of encrypted emails of today. So all the postmasters would open the letters and print them in the papers. We have lots of documentation. And so he proposes to Millie Francis. She says, in essence, are you crazy? You know, like your people killed my people. And I didn't do this looking for something. I did this out of humanity. She did it out of mercy. This sparked wild conversation. Maybe Indians, Native Americans are human. Maybe they're not savages. So she started a civil rights movement without a sit-in, without a protest, without knocking down something or messing up something or screaming. She did it with an act of mercy. She spared the life of an American soldier and she changed the world. No, I wouldn't generalize it too broad because many people in, in the Southern culture, even then, traded with the Indians. They had lots of cool stuff. A lot of people viewed them just like anybody else, but there were some whites that did not. So she sparked this conversation. She was about 15 years old. She arrived at St. Mark's, actually, and just in time to see her father hanged. They're at war. It's all in the book, so I won't give away all the details because it's a, quite a complex story, but it's really interesting. What happened with Millie Francis's father, Josiah? They're in war. He was tricked and captured, along with a fellow who was quite interested in Millie Francis romantically. The prophet Francis is Millie's father, and when they were up in Alabama, he had had a visit from the Master of Breath, and he wanted for all the Indians to return to their traditional ways so they could save their land. So her father is fascinating, fascinating guy, but he's, his name is the prophet Josiah Francis. He's hanged. He begs them to shoot him, but he's hanged. Then the guy that was interested in Millie also, but he gets it shot instead. So he got the latter end of that. She is set west on the Trail of Tears. She's a member of Tuckabachi Hedges Party, passed to Little Rock, Arkansas, according to Dale Cox's research in 1838. And she arrived at Fort Gibson in present-day Oklahoma in January of 1838 and settled with her children in a dirt-floored log cabin. It's actually at the site of Bacon College in Muskogee, Oklahoma. The college kids get to hear her story often. You mentioned that Millie Francis and her children made the Trail of Tears walk. What became of her husband? He went to fight for the U.S. He was a Creek warrior, but he died of fever. He was fighting with the Creek Brigade with the Americans, and they were fighting the Seminoles in Florida. He died of fever. And so she was alone when she went on the Trail of Tears besides her children. How do we know Millie Francis's story? We know her story because of a neat guy that was investigating frauds against the Indians. So five years later, his name was Lieutenant Colonel Ethan Allen Hitchcock. And so he comes to the little town and he talks to the guy at the store and he's like, you know, hey, tell me about 
these people. I'm investigating frauds against you guys. People have been frauded even back then. This five years after she comes to Oklahoma, the shopkeeper says, hey, you've heard the story of Millie Francis, right? And Hitchcock is like, of course, everybody's heard that story. Everybody names their babies Millie Francis. They love this story. And he said, well, she lives just over the hill. You want me to see if she'll talk to you? And he said, yes. He hears the true story of the Creek Pocahontas from her own lips. I'm referencing an article written by Dale Cox on his archive site, Explore Southern History. Pocahontas is um, the story of a real human who saved the life of one, maybe more fellows. It's very debated the specifics of it, but she saved the life of an American many, many years ago. So they called Millie Francis, the modern Pocahontas, because her story was so similar. But she did marry a Creek Indian now. <laughs> she lived there in abject poverty in Oklahoma, and she was positive outlook on things. She had a Bible. She had learned to read, and she became the Colonel of a Baptist. Her father had a radical religion, so that's kind of interesting. But Hitchcock heard her story, and he wrote to the War Department. He just wrote them, you know, he's like, hey, something's got to be done for this girl. She's a hero. She saved the life of an American soldier. The Congress would never take a long time to do anything, as Dale says often. <laughs> but they did back then, and they debated for about two years. And then in 1844, they approved a bill that gave a pension of $96 a year for Millie, a Creek woman. And they awarded a special medal. This is before Congressional Medals were a thing. We would like to ask for Congress to add her to the list of Congressional Medal recipients with a little asterisk that explains, but a Native American woman got this honor. So she hears this is coming. She expresses gratitude and she's on her deathbed. She dies of tuberculosis before the pension, before the medal get to her. She did know about them. The government uh, cut off her pension, <laughs> but her family still has the medal in the Bible. They're very protective of it, and rightly so. Her story is just fascinating, and author and historian Dale Cox had heard about her story from his grandmother. She and her father kept popping up as he moved around the country uh, working. It was just a meant-to-be kind of thing because her story is so fascinating, and it changes so much about the world. And fortunately, for those who want to learn more, there is a book about Millie Francis. Tell us about it. Millie Francis, The Life and Times of the Creek Pocahontas. It talks a lot about her dad, so you get to know about him a lot more. And it tells her story and has the first-hand accounts where documentation proves every step of the way. It tells you what the time was like and how her story impacts the world. And it includes, of course, the picture of the state flag of Florida, which includes the state seal, which has Millie Francis on it throwing flowers. She changed the world, and she's right in front of our noses, and nobody knows it. But I tell people that story because she was part of that history. You know, that's just a few years before the story of her saving Duncan McCrimmon's life. The book can be bought on Amazon, Walmart.com, Target, Barnes & Noble. For those who do want to see you portray Millie Francis, what are their options? Down in Dade City at the Pioneer Florida Museum in December. So I'm going to be doing a first-person interpretation of Millie Francis, and um, it's going to be pretty cool. What was it about Millie Francis that allowed her to be influential, to persuade these warriors to not execute Duncan McCrimmon? Well, she was athletic. She might have physically manipulated these warriors to let the little scrawny white kid go. Who knows? She was really a fast runner, and she could jump on the back of her pony from flat-footed on the ground. So who knows? <laughs> I like to think that she reasoned. When did this occur? So it's in 1818. 1817 starts the First Civil War, 
with the, the Battle of Fowltown and then the Scott Battle of 1817. Then they build Fort Gadsden and then it's in the summertime of 1818. It's after March when they came down. She saved his life. They come on hard times. They actually go back to the place where he was deserted from. He asked her to marry him. She says no. She goes on the Trail of Tears and then her story lives forever because of somebody took the time to listen and write it down. Kind of inspiring for us to write stories down, isn't it? How did Duncan McCrimmon end up in his bad situation? He says he was going fishing in the middle of a rainstorm in the middle of an Indian war. So I take that to mean he was going home, but that's not what he said, to be clear. <laughs> yeah, it's not a safe bet. What happened was predictable. But what wasn't predictable is that this little young 15-year-old girl had mercy and pulled strings, reasoned, and showed mercy, and got something to change. Tell us more about Josiah Francis and his awakening. Unlike many pastors, the prophet Josiah Francis practiced what he preached. So when he got this message from the Master of Breath to return to the traditional ways, he burned his two-story house. He shot his livestock. He amassed quite a following. He did practice what he preached, and they changed everything. He he took his cotton clothes and replaced them with more buckskin things. We have uh, proof of that. Leggings were a dye thing. He had brought Millie Francis back to the latest Paris fashions. That wasn't be something you would think a Native American having access to would be the latest Paris fashions, but Millie Francis did. Two Egg is the production company that you and partner Dale Cox run. What have you done on Millie Francis, and what are you planning to do in the future? In the documentaries we do, we have one about Millie Francis. We're going to do a new one, maybe even a movie one day. And we're working on the backstory of how her story came about is the War of 1812 on the Gulf Coast, told from the Native American point of view by Dale Cox. We have a short video on Millie Francis, the feature we call it, and it's available on Roku and TwoEggTV.com and on YouTube through TwoEggTV's channel. We're going to do another one pretty soon about her because it's just a fascinating story, and we want to really do it justice. We have a lot more footage of Native Americans now, beautiful to tell. When you can prove stuff with first-hand accounts, so that's what a lot of the stuff that Dale does. He gets the first-hand accounts, these letters, a lot of new stuff from the archives in Cuba and Spain and the British and all these places that have to be translated. And, you know, they were lost in some file in a drawer for years, but now they've come to life. A lot of those are in the Fort Prophet Bluff book in 1816. Influenced a lot of things that happened afterwards in Millie Francis's time. People need to know the story. They don't need for you to make up their mind about it. You just tell them the story. They can make up their own mind. They can say, I don't have to tell you. Millie Francis was cool. She did something neat. I just tell you the story. You can make up your mind for yourself. That's what's really interesting about what we do is we just tell you the facts value the facts. You value the research. And I think that's a true educational and open liberal mind. The word has been misused because people need to have open minds. Hey, let me show you the facts. Let me show you this real story. Let me show you where I got this. And if people are really open to discussion and learning, a lot of the stereotypes that we have are quite broken. It's quite wonderful. <laughs> the Creek Indians had some nice word to, them, to describe other races we won't mention. What's interesting about particularly Southeastern Creeks is they valued people based on relationship. They talked to people and made them a part of their group based on relationship. You assimilated into our culture. You could be a white Indian. You could be a black Indian. You could be a red Indian. It didn't matter the color of your skin. It mattered what you did with your life or how you lived and stuff like that. 
people even joining the federally recognized tribes, they have to track their genealogy, not their DNA, because it's relationship. You can be a black Indian, a red Indian, a white Indian based on relationship. And that blows people's mind. It blew my mind. Isn't that true, wonderful Southern culture? Like, it doesn't matter what you look like. It can be ugly as sin, but uh, <laughs> relationship is really what makes a difference. But history is like that. And what everybody can do to really have fun with it is to learn, to listen, to read, get back to the truth behind it. And it's fun. And that's what we try to do with Two Egg TV and the books. And the book publishing company is Old Kitchen Media that publishes Dale's books. He's up to 19 now. But it's quite fun. And, and you have fun with it. You love these stories. And that's really how people learn. That's how I teach. I teach business at Troy University. And I teach with stories. <laughs> you know, history might be even more difficult to teach than business. Because business, we can claim absolute. Things change in business all the time. But history, it's gotten more political now. It's gotten interpretation-based. People don't rely on facts as much as they used to. But it is an opportunity. There's so much an opportunity now to look into the maroon culture, to look into black Seminole culture, to look into Indian or Native American culture, and how everybody just relates together. It doesn't matter in history who you are. It's what your story is. Rachel Conrad, thanks for joining us for The Seminole Wars. Thank you, Patrick. Enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Youngman. Back bumper music Second Seminole Win by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.